Hello, everyone, and welcome to the State Violence Research Network podcast. Uh, my name is George Francis Bickers, the founder and co-convener of the SVRN, uh, and this podcast is part of the network's ongoing work to highlight state violence and those working against it and trying to understand it. Today, for our very first episode, I am joined 11 hours in the future by Keegan O'Guire. Uh, Keegan, it's lovely to have you with us. Wonderful to be here. Um, so, Keegan, can you just before we get kind of properly started, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and your research and how you kind of became aware of the SVRN? Yeah, sure. So I'm actually at the moment, I'm a postgraduate student at the University of Melbourne. Um, and some of the research that I'll be waffling on about today was done at Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology. Um, I suppose like my, my main interest is uh, the conflict in Northern Ireland that um, as far as the policy documents are concerned, as far as all the treaty documents are concerned, went from about 968 through to uh, 998. So we're talking about um, the troubles. Um, and I suppose in terms of how I found out about the SVRN, I think was mainly just through Twitter activity, um, which seems to be how I become aware of anything academic related. <laughs> we do try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So main, mainly social media. Um, but then I kind of, you know, looked a bit further into it. Um, I suppose you and I have been chatting a little bit. Um, and it, yeah, it yeah. really kind of felt like um, a sort of network of uh, researchers doing stuff that is uh, frustratingly uh, thin on the ground sometimes. Well, yeah, we're trying and hopefully this podcast kind of goes some way to helping do that. So um, do you want to tell us a bit? So obviously, like the idea behind the podcast is that people tell us about their research and how it kind of um, like what it reveals about state violence, how it critiques state violence, kind of anything along those lines. And obviously, you've sent me a couple of notes before we've got started. So I've got a couple of questions to kind of come for you later on. But do you want to kind of give us an overview of, of what your research is looking at in, the, in, in as it regards state violence? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so I suppose the the first common thread through the research is that there is not a common thread, which is kind of frustrating. <laughs> um, but I suppose like it kind of started from the point where I was reading up um, originally about um, the Irish Civil War. And then I realized that actually maybe there's a lot more interesting stuff going on uh, in the Troubles in Northern Ireland. So I start getting into the, um, the literature about Northern Ireland. And I realized there's just really weird sort of discourse going on in the literature that even when it tries to present itself as being um, neutral, whatever that really means, it ends up kind of reproducing, perhaps without meaning to, but I'm a little bit more cynical, it ends up kind of reproducing uh, British colonialist discourses um, about uh -huh. who has the right to engage in violence and who doesn't. And it kind of does this thing where it paints state violence as something which is often necessary and sometimes they overstep the boundary and that's regrettable. And that's sad, but, you know, it's still the state, so it can kind of be in that realm. It can exist in that realm of violence, whereas people who, like the Irish Republican Army and the Irish National Liberation Army, who um, are not the state, their violence, no matter what it is, is inherently atavistic and, to some extent, apolitical. And I thought, man, that's really weird. Uh, and I kind of started realising in my first kind of foray into research that um, there are a lot of stuff that tends to get overlooked when you take this approach to research. Uh, namely the, the tactics of resistance that are employed by these people who are not the state. And so I started looking at these um, enclaves is generally what they call it. So there's like different words yeah. used. So like enclaves, you've got um, 
kind of disparagingly called sometimes Catholic ghettos. In so this um, is stuff we're talking like we're talking like Derry and West Belfast. Yeah, exactly. Like that, right? Exactly, yeah. Derry and West Belfast. Um, and so you know that was towards the beginning of the troubles. Um, a lot of not just Republican guys, but you know mainly Catholic guys, mainly guys who kind of identify with. Gaelic culture started throwing up these barricades where the British army just and British aligned actors just could not operate. I thought, man, that is fascinating. Um, but just no one in the research wanted to talk about it. Uh, so my, my first kind of foray into research was looking at exactly how these things got thrown up, how they operated while they were there, and how the British aligned actors then kind of engaged in a whole lot of tactics to try and take that back, or at least perform sovereignty over it, because it kind of took the the standpoint that sovereignty isn't something that you just have and you do by shooting someone is something that you perform daily through a number of tactics. Um, that's, so yeah, that's really interesting. Maybe I could maybe I could kind of pull you up there a little bit. So this this kind of um, one of the things you sent me in your notes as well was this idea of um, like similar tactics being used on both sides of the on both sides of the struggle, right? So the idea of throw, you know, throwing up barricades and blocking off areas of a city is is something that we, I, you know, in in some ways we would more traditionally associate with the state, right, with the police and with the army setting up roadblocks and checkpoints. Yeah, and absolutely. so this kind of like mirroring between the tactics, like how far, like in your in your mind, how far did that go, and what were the kind of consequences of? I think because the term you use, the performance of of sovereignty as well, is really really interesting, right? This is something that again we normally associate with the state and the state's power to do these things, and so actually seizing areas of territory and sitting there saying, well, actually, you know what, this is this is ours and this is where we operate. How does that those those kind of similar tactics? How do they? How far does that go between both sides of that 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 kind of struggle in your mind? Uh, well, it was actually, as far as you know, my interpretation went, it was kind of insane just how much they they um, lined up. So I kind of what I managed to do was break them down into you know six descriptive categories, and I say descriptive just because it's easier to group them that way. And obviously, there's a lot of crossover in the tactics. But basically, yeah. when we break it down like that, you've got stuff like one category: performative violence. Uh, there's intelligence gathering. Um, there's you know, the physical occupation, the exclusion of space, which you know, takes a number of forms and is very important. There's also stuff like yeah. welfare and service provision. So like um, providing a, a sort of like a social service, a social uh, benefit scheme. In Australia, it's yeah. called Centrelink. I don't know if you have like a um, an unemployment benefit scheme in the UK. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I, from what I understand about Centrelink is it's like totally 100% everything is like all in one place now, right? Which they're trying to move to over here with universal credit now. Um, right. So yeah, trying to, put, trying to pull everything together in that way, yeah. Right, yeah. So you had kind of a system like that on both sides in different ways. And also in terms of like um, supplying or cutting off uh, utilities like gas and electricity. Also mm -hmm. like manipulation of uh, symbolism. In terms of, um, you know, you're obviously familiar with the murals on the Gable End walls, yeah. in, you know, famously yeah. in Belfast, um, but also comes down to graffiti and tagging and all this sort of stuff. And finally, um, and what I think is most important and most interesting is this manipulation of language and discourse, which seemed to be the only sort of one of these categories that I kind of loosely grouped together um, that, in which the British aligned actors managed to really excel um, and really outdo Republican aligned actors. Mm -hmm. So this is, I mean, those, those, it's really, really interesting because I mean, I, so I'm, I'm kind of working on finishing my thesis at the moment. Right. And it looks at um, like my PhD thesis looks at kind of similar things. And those six categories that you've just laid out for me, I'm just, I'm just literally finishing up 
a chapter on the Black Panthers and the way they are making use of writing and space as a means of mm. contesting the state. And those six categories, literally every single one of them, equally applies to the Black Panthers in the kind of late 60s and right into the early 70s. And so like this parallel, especially, you know, the, the, like the performative violence is how the Panthers start. Occupation is the way that I'm framing their stuff. But the welfare programs and service is one of the things that's most well known about the Panthers. Mm. So I'm wondering, like, obviously, it'd be difficult to say, you know, with any kind of conclusive proof that, oh, well, there's this kind of sharing of stuff one way or the other. But one of the things I found really interesting in the notes that you sent me is um, you made the case that Ireland was the first British plantation, right? And it, mm-hmm. and you, the, the terms you used were that it was, it was a test case for the rest of the British Empire and that there was a boomerang effect, that what mm-hmm. was done in Ireland was then done elsewhere and then was brought back. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering if you think this kind of stuff applies rather than um, just the government side of things, the government testing out ideas and it then coming back, is this kind of almost shared concept of struggle against the state, right? Do you see any kind of grounds for that with the Irish Republican Army in particular? Were they kind of sharing? Is there any kind of evidence that they were sharing tactics with other movements or reading and knowing about other movements? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, you had a lot of IRA guys who were going down to uh, South America. They're doing a lot of stuff mm-hmm. down there. They have a lot of contact with the FARC guys. Um, yeah. In, yeah. Um, I, I'm just struggling to remember off the top of my head if they had anything to do with the Black Panthers. I'm a little bit embarrassed that I'm not 100% sure. But well, I mean, I'm def- thinking at the, at the same time, I'm trying to think like I've just been going through basically every issue with the Black Panther newspaper. I'm trying to remember if there were any IRA references in there. Like, I'm sure there must be some at some point. But I mean, the Panthers' yeah. main focus was kind of what at the time was being called third world activism. So maybe, you know, maybe the IRA stuff wasn't there. But, you know, who knows? I think if anything, um, you know, just knowing how... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just how much of a force, how much of a force to be reckoned with the Black Panthers, where I wouldn't be surprised if it was kind of the other way around, if the IRA was kind of taking nods from them. Yeah, because yeah. so much so much of, um, you know, the IRA throughout the 20th century was uh, kind of taking a more and more of a socialist stance. They were reading a lot of stuff coming out of um, the continent, but they were also reading a lot of, um, you know, what we would, what other people have kind of called third world stuff, which is not necessarily yeah. my favorite term. But yeah, um, mine either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, they were they were undoubtedly coming into that sort of uh, literature. But they were also, you know, we have well documented that they're going to South America, they're going to Palestine, um, and so there was kind of knowledge flowing both ways across, mm-hmm. through, and under these state structures as well. Excellent. I mean, so maybe I could put, I mean, so obviously I I kind of derailed you somewhat when you were talking about language and discourse. And this seems to be one of the kind of major focuses of your research, right, is how this discourse was being used. There's that there's there was a kind of competition between between discourses, right, but that actually you know the british government and particularly kind of thatcher at the time um was that the discourse that she was using and the british government were using has become kind of um was was actually a major tool in negating the actions of irish republican struggle right of an anti-colonial struggle so i wonder if you could kind of talk some more about that yeah absolutely um i think maybe kind of the best way to go about the reasoning is just like to take a couple of steps back for me um, yeah. and kind of like I started from the point where I was like, man, isn't it actually really, really weird that we've just kind of accepted that English is the language 
spoken in Ireland. And obviously this mm-hmm. is like, you know, a hot topic con- considering the Irish Language Act and, you know, the Ulster Scots yeah, yeah. provisions in that. Um, but, it, you know, it, when I talk to my students when I'm teaching as well, I kind of freak them out by speaking a bit of Irish and they're like, what, what is this language? I'm like, well, what language do they speak in Ireland? They're like English. I'm like, well, why is that? Think about why this yeah, is. Yeah. And then you kind of go forth from that and you realize how much erasure of the language itself is happening. You realize how much of erasure of the culture is happening and how they may or may not be kind of interconnected as it is. Um, And then the next step is you actually realize the sort of language that these communities, when I say these communities, I mean kind of Republican aligned communities and loyalist aligned communities were using against each other to kind of neutralize each other. So, you know, fairly famously, um, there's a number of slurs that um, loyalist aligned actors would use against Republican aligned actors. Um, And, you know, Republican aligned guys would usually construct loyalists as, you know, Brits or Huns or whatever. And through this Mm -hmm. language, you would kind of um, politically take the political power out of your opponent. And also even within Republican communities, if you wanted to kind of say that someone was no longer part of your community, you would just accuse them of being a pedophile. And most times that actually wasn't true. You would you would accuse them as being a pedophile or an informer and kind of regardless of whether or not that was actually true, that was your way of uh, politically disarming someone within your own community and sending them out. And I thought, man, that's a really interesting process. That's a really interesting mechanism. And then I kind of started thinking about actually how maybe this ties into the very thing that got me interested in Troubles research in the first place, which is this colonization that's reproduced through the way that we talk about um, the use of violence in Northern Ireland, whether that's by the state or by people um, opposed to the state. Um, and then I started thinking, well, if it's being reproduced in in the literature, surely, surely this is actually just something that's reproducing a sovereign discourse, which seeks to depoliticize and disarm political enemies through discursive constructions. And then, yeah, I kind of ended up um, getting a little bit obsessed with the criminalization regime from Mm -hmm. 1976 through to about 81, depending on how you look at it. So essentially up until 1976, um, anti-state, I suppose you could say anti-state, non-state military members, because it technically included loyalists, even though it tended not to apply to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Up to this point, they'd been treated as enemy combatants in a sort of war. Not explicitly, but kind of implicitly in the way that they were dealt with and the way that they were generally... There's a a kind of legalistic framework there that that kind of like, it's the way someone is treated ends up kind of stating what their role is, right, rather than the other way around. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we we tended to intern people rather than imprison them, which is essentially the same thing, but yet, like you're saying, in a legal framework. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. And then suddenly we have this kind of uh, switching to Southport, as it were, in in 76, where we start saying, no, they're just criminals and um, they're just subjects. They're part of us. They're just being being naughty, very, very naughty, but they're still one of us and they're one of (laughs) our subjects. We we own them. They're our subjects. They are obliged to follow our laws. Therefore, they've just done what Derrida will call a betise and they just go on a prison. We're not fighting against them. They just go into prison. That's all it is. Nothing to see here. Bye bye. There's no colony. And, to it fight just, and that, yeah, and that strips that strips the kind of political purpose out of the out of the tactic, right? Absolutely, and I think culminates in the point where you have that like the famous maxim by Thatcher, which is crime is crime is crime. It is not political. Um, which really sums it up, and it's really actually every time I listen to it, it gets more and more creepy. Just how powerful yeah. it is. <laughs> There's something very dystopic about it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Combined with I like mean, a very flat affect, it's all very crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's horrible. And it, like, so you, as you said, like this idea of, of it being a simple crime strips strips the kind of colonial element of this away, right? It takes away the fact that 
the north of Ireland is a colony, right? And, mm-hmm. You know, depending on how you view it, but you know, a lot of us would view it as a colony. And and um, you know, we, we, you know, I think it's very clear from the from the conversation we're having and from this history that, that the Irish Republican Army figured this as a colony and figured themselves as victims of colonization, right? But th- this 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 crime is crime is crime stuff is a really really kind of particular kind of state violence, right? Mm-hmm. There's like there are possible parallels with um, with Kashmir. Um, although I'm definitely, I'm certainly no expert in that, but there's instances of like this with the U S empire as well, right? The, you know, people like to, people consider the U S without an empire. And they're obviously, I say as an Americanist, they're obviously, that's obviously not true, but like there's particular, particular instances of this in relation to like Puerto Rico, for example, it's a colony in everything, but name, it has no political rep, no proper political representation and relies on, you know, it relies on American. I mean, America literally bought it. Right. Mm. Um, and so, but then to strip out any sense of it being a colony means it can't have, I mean, it, it means this, this kind of the central state, the dominant state, whoever that case may be, you know, in, in the, the case of uh, the North of Ireland, it's Britain as the dominant state. And in the case of Puerto Rico, it's the US as the state, is you have this sense that it refuses the kinds of anti-colonial discourse and just says, well, no, what you've done is you're just angry or you're just upset rather than this being a kind of, or you're just a criminal rather than this being a kind of legitimate anti-colonial or even revolutionary struggle. Mm, absolutely. And I think even further than that, even in places that we tend to kind of think of as stable and complete and done, it's over and done with in in Australia. And this is kind of kind yeah. of why I started on this strand in the first place. Like, obviously, there's, um, you know, sentimental reasons for looking back to Ireland, but uh, on a on a more objective level, um, it's, it's Australia, like the entire nation is just a penal colony that calls itself otherwise. Um, yeah. It's, it's a big colony. And yeah, it's absolutely no surprise that um, we have such a high incarceration rate for Indigenous people when these laws were set up to maintain a colony, not to maintain yeah. some sort of nice, peaceful, happy place for everyone that we like to try and talk about. It's it's a colony and it's genocide and it's ongoing. And these processes yeah, started it, in it, Ireland. It's a colony on stolen, well, I suppose like all colonies, right, are normally on stolen land as well. So there's these you know, these multiple levels of it that one, one colony, in al- almost in order to kind of replicate the... Um, replicate the, the mother country for want of a better word begins to enact the same kinds of colonial violence on its indigenous peoples right mm-hmm. i think sometimes this sort of analysis tends to get like a bit of flack from different sides because i mean it is like if you want to reduce it fairly lefty um so it tends to get a bit of flack from other leftists for not being you know intersectional enough and i suppose where it becomes mm-hmm. intersectional is it's not just purely um you know white guys coming over and colonizing it's also class-based um you know there's also like a gendered aspect to it as well all of these things converge to make one big ugly war machine um which tends to benefit straight white anglo-celtic guys like myself who are here as settlers um so this this i mean this idea then of we've kind of touched on it a bit already but this idea of this boomerang effect right of the fact that ireland is the first plantation leads to the kinds of tactics that were used in the colonial you know colonial america were used in colonial australia were used kind of across the world by the british Mm -hmm. empire um is and obviously we've spoken about how this can be seen on the kind of side of struggle as well that there is a kind of backwards and forwards I think in I was wondering like how much does your research if at all does it touch on kind of the ideas of counterinsurgency rather than just kind of counter discourses right because there's a number of scholars that are coming out recently 
um i'm trying to think off the top of my head uh, Stuart schrader is one he wrote a book called um badges without borders and uh Mikol siegel who is going to be one of the keynotes at the svrn conference has written mm. a book called violence work and we're seeing this kind of um, uptick in, in counterinsurgency research and this similar kind of boomerang effect, right? Is, is things are being tested out in, if you kind of initially pioneered in, you know, to carry on using the term, in the mother country and then being exported out to, um, to other situations and then brought back, the, the lessons are being brought back to further oppress people in the kind of dominant, in the dominant state nation um mm. so does does your research kind of touch on because obviously the the kind of discourses and stuff is is obviously right at the forefront of your work but does this kind of these kind of military or counterinsurgency and policing tactics do they come into it at all i think a little bit uh in terms of policing tactics and in terms of like how the line between the two is increasingly blurring which is something that guys at the uh the paris school like didier bigo and philippe bonditi um have been writing a bit about but i suppose that's a little bit in terms of like specific tactics um it's a little bit at the periphery but also mm-hmm. at, at once central to it insofar as um i don't see a difference in the two violences i think they're just different expressions of the same violence and there's yeah the no, same, totally agreed yeah yeah, in the same way that there's like, and this is where, you know, Derrida comes in, in the same way that Derrida kind of talks about his concept of difference, uh, there's kind of like this same violence that sits between the poles of those two violences that we like to kind of binarize. Um, so there's just, I suppose, one more thing, really. Um so you're obviously you're you know you are presenting at um, the State Violence Research Network conference that's coming up in April, and we're really happy to have you. Obviously, you're presenting via video link because Australia mm-hmm. is a long, long way to come. Um, yeah which is perhaps why it was turned into a penal colony. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> but um, I was really, really struck by your, um, your uh, by a phrase that you used. In fact, I think it's the title of your, your, your presentation is the state as a verb. Mm-hmm. And I was really, really, I remember going through me and the, me and my co-convener, Philip, we were going through, um, going through the abstracts and I, I, you, your, yours was in my pile and seeing the title of it. And I was like, Jesus, this is, this is, this sounds really interesting as a concept. And I was wondering if you, obviously, you know, you might not have written the paper yet because who writes a conference paper before the day they present it, right? <laughs> but um, I was wondering if you could maybe tell me what your thoughts are behind that idea of the state as a verb and how maybe how it res- relates to this, this to what we've been talking about today. Yeah, so I suppose that kind of springs from, I suppose drawing together a lot of the strands that we have been talking about already in terms of uh, not necessarily thinking the state as something that like Hobbes would have thought of it as this like completed entity, this body with, and this weird extended metaphor of like a head and legs. Yeah. And, you know, in fact, um, Foucault, who like underpins a lot of my work, obviously, he kind of makes the charge at Hobbes that he was being intentionally obtuse when he was making these metaphors. That he was trying to erase a whole lot of conquest and a whole lot of colonization because every mm-hmm. form of government is a form of colonization. Um, and so I suppose it kind of rejects that and instead kind of picks up with Foucault and with Derrida um, as as uh, centers for sparking thought and kind of getting the ball rolling with thinking in these areas. And as such, thinking about the state is something that doesn't just exist, but rather something that is done. Um, the mm-hmm. state is something that's done every day. Sovereignty is what we do every day. Um, and so kind of starting from that point of thinking, when I ended up with these results talking about uh, the importance of uh, manipulating language and discourse, 
I was like, man, I was already thinking about the state as something that we do all the time, but seeing just how important the manipulation of language and discourse are here, there's kind of this, you know, slightly lame double pun of the state is a <laughs> verb, not just in the sense that it's an English verb, which is why. I yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I think I submitted the title, title in Irish and English, which is what I tend to you do. You did, today. yeah. Yeah, make a bit of a snarky point. but <laughs> I wasn't going to attempt, I wasn't going to, attempt <laughs> to pronounce the Irish version. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's something that is a verb in the doing sense, but also a verb in, in the spoken sense. And at the end of the day, which is where like Derrida comes in, it's these, these texts, which obviously are not just words, um, that really define our existence in, in the very real sense that they are all that exists. There's nothing, there's no outside text and there's no state outside of the text, which is a verb. That's, I mean, that's, it's fascinating and it, it kind of ties in with, I mean, so my, my current research is kind of focused on social movements, but I'm pivoting as I'm coming towards the end of my thesis, I'm beginning to think about what comes next and I'm starting to pivot away from, um, away from social movements and towards the police, uh, like critical policing studies. And the reason behind this is I was talking to a friend of mine who's an anthropologist, like a self-loathing anthropologist, um, <laughs> absolutely hates anthropology and anthropologists but is one himself, uh, it's from Brazil mm -hmm. and was out doing his field work in Rio and went to this kind of um, favela research conference. Now I'm probably remembering this slightly wrong, but the, I suppose the point is the impact that it had on my thinking is he went to this uh, uh, research conference that was concerned with favelas and the police and the military police and the kind of security forces were there recording everyone's, everyone's, um, everyone's projects about you know how do we support favela people how do we resist the police blah 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 and the, the state was set that sat there recording this stuff and when he told me this it put me in mind my particular focus is on la and it put me in mind of um a quote i'd read from um daryl gates who was the chief of the lapd during the rodney king riots in 1992 but he had been chief parker's um, driver and like special officer during the Watts riots in 1965. And an interviewer said to him after the Rodney King riots, oh, what was it like being in the, the Watts riots? Um, mm. and, and he was said, oh, well, the first thing we did was we went to the university libraries and we went to all these libraries and we got everything we could about guerrilla warfare out, every piece of research we could. And then I was like, oh, you bastards. Like they, they're just, <laughs> using our own work and turning it against us right yeah. and actually we end up even those of us that are like critical of the state those of us that are trying to deconstruct it and to challenge it we end up doing this as well right yeah. we end up doing this verb we end up doing the state for itself and because i mean i take the reason i, I bring this up is because you spoke about the kind of there is no outside text right there's mm -hmm. um if i'm remembering what you said correctly there so how is it that you know efforts like the SVRN and efforts like the conference and me and you talking here, how is it if the state, if we consider the state to be a verb, which I'm not challenging, I think that's an entirely, like an entirely legitimate kind of res response to it. Is how, where is the room for challenge? You know what I mean? What do we do? Yeah, well, I think it's kind of embedded in the fact that the state is a verb in that it requires a doing and realizing that it doesn't just exist and it's not just static on, you know, some sort of, political field it's not just a monolith on the political field it's it's a verb it's a practice it's trend it's transcendent it's not imminent it's something that mm -hmm. therefore we can actually challenge and whether that is through this circulation of language in the form of discourse and the circulation of certain terms and certain binaries which reinforce state power identifying them realizing what they are and doing them 
Um, I don't want to say deconstructing because then Derrida will come back from the grave and slap me. <laughs> um, but, but then also like, you know, what Foucault, what Foucault would call like non-discursive practices of power. And so these other categories, like in terms of the um, understanding how other groups and how the state does the performative violence and how they do the occupation exclusion of space, realizing that they are engaging in a verb just as much as we can engage in a verb. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's actually quite freeing to realize this. And it's a question of um, learning, always, always learning and listening and um, getting people um, activated, doing praxis for want of a better term. Excellent. Sounds perfect to me. Uh, all right, Keegan, if you've got anything else you'd like to sign off with, you want to tell us where you are online and stuff, tell us where we can find you. Yeah, absolutely. So I have a very convoluted Twitter handle, if you want to have a crack at that one, <laughs> which is Rhizomatic Frog rhizome as in Deleuze's rhizome I don't stop being a pretentious nerd so rhizomatic yeah. frog <laughs> um <laughs> I think that's probably the only one that we can reach me on for the time being until I'm a big uh proper real actual person academic at which point I can give you like an institutional address but rhizomatic well frog let's hope that happens big. let's hope that happens sooner rather than later me Keegan too. that's brilliant thank you very much um thank you so much for coming to talk to us uh we're really looking forward to having you at the conference and um having you as part of the SVRM. We really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure from 11 hours in the future. Um, Thank you everyone for listening. We really appreciate you joining us. And this was the very first episode of the SVRM podcast. Uh, Thank you so much to Keegan for being with us. Um, If you want to find out more about the State Violence Research Network, we've got a couple of online presences. You can find our website, which is stateviolenceresearchnetwork.co.uk. If you want to become a member, just add forward slash membership to the end of that. Uh, Membership is always free. The SVRN is uh, is an academic and activist collective. We... um, our point, our purpose is to keep access free and open to everyone. Um, our conference is coming up on the 8th to 10th of April 2020. Uh, unfortunately, the call for papers is now closed, but we are, um, anyone is welcome to come and attend. Um, we have some excellent events and excellent speakers running throughout the whole conference. You can find registration information on our website. It's very, very cheap because, we, again, we try and keep things accessible. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at State Violence RN. Um, you can also find a Discord link to our Discord server on our Twitter on our Twitter page. And um, the SVRM works as a process of mutual aid. Uh, no one, none of the people who run it, none of the people who facilitate it, none of the people who take part are paid. Uh, we all do this out of mutual aid. So we are constantly kind of trying to find uh, financial support. Now, if you want to become a financial supporter of the SVRN, you can do that by becoming a Patreon, a patron on Patreon. I think that's the way we would talk about it, uh, <laughs> which you can find at www.patreon.com forward slash State Violence Research Network. Uh, so from me, George, uh, and all of the SVRN, uh, thank you very much for listening. And we hope you'll join in with us next time. Come and sign up for membership. Thank you very much.